Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. You know, each day we have a series of choices of where to spend our time and what to think and how to go about our day. And some people choose to fill their day with positive energy and worthwhile things. That's why I like uplifting podcasts. And this podcast is born from a deep desire to help us all live a happier life. And the firm belief that a powerful way to make that happen is to open our eyes to new ways of seeing life. So today, in this time together, I hope we get a new perspective of how to think and live better. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about the power of standing in honor and how we can open our eyes and be grateful for those who have stood and served in honor. On October 5th, 1965, Sarah Spears gave birth to a baby girl she named Kara. Kara's father, Tor Hutgreen, was a paper company executive. Kara's mother was a corporate attorney and one of the first women to graduate from the University of Texas Law School. The family would move several times and finally settled in San Antonio, Texas, where Kara attended Alamo Heights High School. Kara was always independent, said her mother. She was adventuresome. She was fearless. She had sweetness and generosity of spirit from the time that she was born. Well, after her parents' divorce, as she entered high school, when the girls' basketball team was discontinued, Kara took up tennis and with no previous experience, ended the year second on a school tennis team that was best in the state. She excelled at math, including trigonometry and calculus, and got A's in science, social studies, and other academic subjects. The Chicago Tribune wrote, her photograph in the senior class yearbook is that of a sophisticated and very grown-up young woman wearing pearls. Her entry lists her college choice as the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. Well, she applied, but didn't get in. They took 94 women that year, and she was 97 on the list, said her mother. Crestfallen but not thwarted, Kara took another route, majoring in aerospace engineering at the University of Texas and taking every course imaginable that would help her get into Naval Aviation Officer Candidate School upon graduation. And she did. Kara graduated from her initial flight training in the turboprop T-34 with top honors. The Navy was allowing only a few slots for women to fly jets, and she got one. And she mastered the T-2C Buckeye and TA-4 Skyhawk in four and a half months and got her wings. Kara was clear with the Navy and her superior officers. She wanted to fly fighter jets, but no women had yet achieved this status. This started a number of years in which Kara was perhaps the most qualified pilot, but because of her gender, she never got the opportunity. Their resentment wasn't helped by Holgreen's going to Congress to lobby for combat roles for women pilots, standing up to Air Force generals in committee hearings and speaking her mind in the news media. Now, part of her training was swimming a mile in combat gear. And according to her sister, Kara not only made the distance, but lapped all the men in her group, winning a physical fitness badge as a consequence. Kara said, I say the Pledge of Allegiance, and it means something to me. This country stands for freedom, equality, opportunity, and it's about putting the most qualified, capable individual in any job based on their performance and abilities. I'm just as willing as, and able to execute my training as any man, and I'm willing to take the same risks that accompany all the opportunities 
I'm willing to make those sacrifices. Well, Kara didn't normally wear makeup as a Navy officer, but she did when she had TV interviews. And she was quickly accorded the call sign, Revlon. Well, it wasn't until April 1993 that the Pentagon finally dropped the ban on women in combat, and Kara became one of the first to be selected for F-14 training. However, she failed to qualify for carrier operations her first time out. And the Navy says this happens to about 25% of F-14 trainees, and 70% of these are given a second chance, as was Kara. Now, you have to understand what carrier operations include. An aircraft carrier is only 1,100 feet long. It weighs 100,000 tons. It has 25 decks and is 250 feet tall. Living on the aircraft carrier is about 500 officers and 3,500 enlisted men and women. The average number of aircraft aboard is about 75. For comparison, on a single aircraft carrier, there is more aircraft than Cuba has in their entire Air Force. There are a total of 21 aircraft carriers operated by 14 different navies around the world. The U.S. has 11 of those 21. China, India, Italy, the United Kingdom, France, and Russia each have two. So, operating an aircraft carrier is an incredibly complicated endeavor. The landing area on the carrier for a plane is only 315 feet. And to land on the flight deck, each plane has a tail hook, which is exactly what it sounds like, an extended hook attached to the plane's tail. The pilot's goal is to snag the tail hook on one of the four arresting wires stretched across the deck. If the tail hook snags an arresting wire, it pulls the wire out and the hydraulic cylinder system absorbs the energy to bring the plane to an immediate 1.4 second stop. The arresting wire system can stop a 54,000 pound aircraft traveling 150 miles per hour. The pilot will see different lights on approach depending on the pilot's angle. If the plane is right on target, the pilot will see an amber light, dubbed the meatball, in line with a row of green lights. If the amber light appears above the green lights, the plane is coming in too high. If the amber light appears below the green lights, the plane is coming in too low. And if the plane is coming in way too low, the pilot will see red lights. Well, as soon as the plane hits the deck, the pilot will push the engines to full power instead of slowing down. This may seem counterintuitive, but if the tail hook doesn't catch any of the arresting wires, the plane needs to be moving fast enough to take off again and come around for another landing. Here's the problem. At night and in a storm, the carrier can pitch up and down and side to side 30, 40, or 50 feet, making the runway a moving target, and pilots can end up crashing into the side of the carrier. Well, on her second try, Kara became an aircraft carrier certified pilot and began flying the F-14. Five months into her tour, she was attempting to land on the USS Abraham Lincoln off the coast of San Diego. She made her approach towards the carrier deck. Kara found herself overshooting the landing area centerline. For whatever reason, she tried to abort and correct her approach by applying the left rudder pedal. This pushed the nose of the jet to the left and the nose got in the way of the airflow of the left wing. The nose also disrupted the airflow into the left engine intake, and this caused the engine to suffer a compression stall and lose power. Well, to recover, Kara applied the full power to the remaining engine. This caused the left wing to drop and the aircraft turned 
rapidly. Well, prior to the stall, the radar officer seated in the rear seat ejected. Kara's ejection seat fired just a half a second later, but by this time, she was ejected downward into the water, killing her instantly. 19 days after the crash, the Navy recovered the plane and Kara's body still strapped to her seat. Well, after her death, much was said about Kara's gender and her qualifications to fly. But a fellow F-14 pilot, Francisco Paco Cerici, would later say, the treatment Kara received after her death has always stayed with me as one of the greatest injustices witnessed during my naval career, and that her squadron executive officer crashed in a simulator 97% of the time when faced with the same landing problems that Kara had. Now, I don't know all the details behind Kara's crash, but I do know something very important. She served. She stood up. She served her country with honor. And Kara or any pilot who puts their life in the line every time they approach a moving aircraft carrier are saying something really powerful, that I am willing to give all I have, including my own life, to protect and preserve our freedom. I stand in honor of my country and those who have gone before me. You know, not long ago, we celebrated Veterans Day here in the United States. The start of Veterans Day dates back to the armistice ending of World War I, which went into effect on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918. It was originally called Armistice Day, but was renamed Veterans Day in 1954. November 11th fell on Saturday this year, so the state and federal holiday was observed on Friday, November 10th. The idealistic hope was that World War I was the war to end all wars. November 11th might still be called Armistice Day, but only a few years after the holiday was proclaimed, war broke out in Europe again. 16 and one-half million Americans took part. 407,000 of them died in service. Can you imagine? 407,000 soldiers killed. And that number was exceeded by the number of people from the UK who were killed in the same war, 450,000. In total, 3.76% of the entire population of the world was killed in World War II. Last year was the 40th anniversary of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And if you've been there, like I have, you stand in awe and honor of the sheer size of the memorial. There, carved into the stone, are the names of over 58,000 service members who gave their life in service. At the 40th anniversary memorial service, the Secretary of Defense said the following, For 40 years, this solemn place has beckoned visitors to feel the profound connection between the past and the present in the simplest of ways, by reaching out a hand and touching a name. Standing at the wall, hand outstretched, we feel that the sacrifices of these 58,281 fallen Americans remain with us. They shape who we are today, and they urge us to live up to America's full promise. I think about Alfred Rascon, a son of Chihuahua, Mexico. In Vietnam in 1966, Specialist 4 Rascone found his platoon under assault. Defying orders, he ran towards the firefight to help. Surrounded by teammates and severely injured himself, he threw his body in front of a comrade to shield him from enemy fire. Incredibly, Specialist Rancone repeated this act of bravery two more times, covering two other teammates with his own body to absorb the explosions. And so that day, a young man who wasn't born in the United States 
showed the very best of America. You know, he recovered from his injuries and he became an American citizen. And amazingly, he volunteered for another tour in Vietnam. And he continued to serve his country and eventually became the director of the Selective Service System. Somehow, the request for Specialist Rascone's Medal of Honor got lost. But the soldiers in his platoon never forgot his courage, so they kept pushing. And more than three decades later, Specialist Rascone finally received his Medal of Honor. When he accepted it, he said, The honor is not really mine. And so he asked the platoon mates who were there with him that day to stand up and be recognized. The Secretary of Defense continued, We owe our veterans not only our deepest gratitude, but also our unwavering commitment to the democratic values that you have been so proud to defend. Thank you to all our veterans for answering your country's call. We will never forget what you have given us. May God bless all those who have served and who still serve. Now, I know many of you listening to this message do not live in the United States, but service in your country and the sacrifice of those who served and serve where you live is just as noble. But there is much we can learn when we open our eyes to see the price paid for the freedoms we enjoy. Ronald Reagan famously said, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in our DNA. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in a country where people were free. So this leads us to our topic today. It's up to you and me to also stand in honor and do our part, to be part of the solution, to lend our voice and our vote to speak up and stand up for what we believe. In 1968, at the height of the Vietnam War, Cleve McClary and his unit of 13 men were on patrol in the jungles of Vietnam. A grenade suddenly exploded near McClary, sending shrapnel into his side. Then an enemy soldier jumped into the foxhole carrying a bag full of explosives, which detonated and took off Cleve's left arm, just above the elbow. Another explosion would take the left side of his face, his eye, and part of his mouth. He knew he had to retreat or die, and as he got up to run, another grenade exploded, critically injuring his legs. Klebe survived. He was evacuated to a Navy hospital in Japan. After surgery, he hung on to life, but he was so discouraged that he had given up. He expected to die. Arriving at the hospital that day was professional golfer Billy Casper. As a golfer, Casper won 51 tournaments, three major championships, and was PGA Player of the Year twice. Jim Huber called Casper the Dalai Lama of golf. Huber said, no man I've ever known with his kind of credentials has ever been more eager to hug and be hugged, to give until it runs out. When Casper attended tournaments in the U.S., he would often speak to church youth groups the night before the tournament would begin. And it wasn't uncommon to see these kids following Casper for the next few days during his tournament. But when he traveled overseas, Casper tried to serve in other ways. He wanted to do his part. So when Casper arrived at the hospital that day in Japan, he noticed McClary lying in his hospital bed. The doctor told Casper not to bother with Lieutenant McClary. He wasn't going to make it. But Casper approached him anyway. McClary said, I will never forget that day. I'd given up. 
I wanted to die, and I'd have died right there if not for him. He put his arms around me, leaned in and said, God can use you today. Don't give up. Then Casper thanked him for what McClary had sacrificed and given for his country and ended with God bless you. Everything changed for McClary in that moment. He realized God needed him and he had a reason to live. And the funny thing is that McClary didn't know golf from polo and didn't know Casper. All he knew is that some golfer named Casper had come to his aid. McClary finally recovered, returned home and became a speaker and a minister. He worked his entire life for wounded veterans. He often shared the story of a golfer, this guardian angel, who had turned his life around in a moment of kindness with a few simple words. In 2013, McClary was talking with professional golfer Jay Haas and told the story of a golfer that had changed his life. He asked Haas if he knew Casper. Of course, Haas knew him, the hugging Dalai Lama of golf. What's more, Haas knew that Casper, the 1970 Masters champion, would be attending the upcoming Masters tournament and it was determined that the two men would get together. So on Tuesday, April 8th, 2014, outside the clubhouse at Augusta National, Jay Haas arranged for these two men to reunite for the first time in 46 years. Upon seeing each other, Casper and McClary fell into a long overdue embrace. They stayed there for what seemed like five minutes or more, McClary just held him tight with his one arm, his right arm, and Casper said, don't let go until you want to. Through his tears, McClary told Casper he was proud of the life that he had led, not because of the medals of honor he received or the best-selling book he wrote, but because he did exactly what Casper told him to do. He didn't give up. He stood up with honor and gave his life to God. Make no mistake about it, a friend of McClary's would tell Casper, You are the reason he's alive. Standing together, the two of them, on the legendary landscape of the Masters, they wiped away their tears and savored their reunion. You know, that would be the last Masters that Casper would ever see. In fact, that day was his last full day on a golf course. The next day, Casper collapsed on the clubhouse porch and was rushed to the hospital, suffering a heart attack. After enduring subsequent surgeries, Casper died a few months later. Now, while there are many lessons to learn from these two men, one significant lesson is this. Both McClary and Casper did their part. They served. They gave. And both served in the cause of freedom, making life better for those around them. You and I don't have to be a professional golfer or a war hero. We can stand up just the same and give of what we have to bless those around us. On this last Veterans Day, I went with my brothers and sisters and my father to a local senior citizen center where the amazing people there serve as part of the Quilts of Valor Foundation. A wonderful woman in our community spent hours making a quilt for my father to honor his service as a fighter pilot in the U.S. Air Force. It was an amazing day listening to the stories of veterans who served as engineers and military police, pilots, infantrymen, and others. Each was given a quilt and each received thanks for their service. Quilts of Valor Foundation began in 2023 with a dream, literally a dream. Founder Catherine Roberts' son, Nat, was deployed in Iraq. And according to Catherine, the dream was as vivid as real life. I saw a young man, she said, sitting on the side of his bed in the middle of the night, hunched over. 
The permeating feeling was one of utter despair. I could see his war demons clustered around, dragging him down to an emotional gutter. Then, as if viewing a movie, I saw him next in a scene wrapped in a quilt. His whole demeanor changed from one of despair to one of hope and well-being. The quilt had made a dramatic change. The message of my dream was quilts equal healing. The model appeared simple. Have a volunteer team that would donate their time and materials to make a quilt. One person would piece the top, the other would quilt it. I saw the name for this special quilt. It was Quilt of Valor. Well, through their service, 318,000 quilts have been made and given to veterans, thanking them for their service. Now, you may not think a quilt can make a difference, but it did to my father. And it was the thank you, the service, the sacrifice that made all the difference to him. Now, I don't know what you can do or where you can serve, but I know you and I can both do something. On June 6, 1984, President Ronald Reagan stood on a hill called Point Duoc, an outcropping in the middle of Omaha Beach that juts out into the English Channel. Point Duoc was the objective to be taken at all costs of two teams of rangers 40 years earlier. The day was D-Day, and later that day, tens of thousands of Allied soldiers would land at Normandy Beach, and the German guns atop the hill had to be eliminated. Well, sitting before Reagan that day were 62 of those boys, those young rangers, now middle-aged men, who had climbed the cliffs at Point Duoc, using grappling hooks and ladders to reach the German guns atop the hill. Too many of their fellow rangers lost their life on D-Day, but these men were gathered there to remember their fallen comrades. In 1944, the German guns at Top Point Duoc were fortified with concrete securing the gun pits from which the Germans would fire artillery at any invasion force. The bunkers atop the hill held six 155-millimeter guns and 30 anti-aircraft guns. On D-Day, Rangers from the U.S. 2nd and 5th Battalions were given the task to take Point Duoc. The plan was to land the battalions by sea on Omaha Beach, and the men would cross the beach and scale the cliffs using their ladders and ropes before the primary landings of men and equipment would follow. At 7.10 a.m., the assault force was carried ashore in 10 landing craft. Before they even got near the shore, one landing craft was sunk, with all of its occupants being drowned in the choppy waves. Some of the landing craft landed further down the beach on Omaha. After suffering heavy casualties, the rangers finally climbed the hill and took control of the German placements. But before they could secure anything, the Germans came at them in several waves, killing most of the battalion. Soon, they had reached Point Duoc and secured it. In the hours that followed, 150,000 brave young soldiers landed on the beaches of Normandy. Before they landed, the men were told to plan on 75% casualty rate during the attack. Can you imagine? Imagine you left your transport ship, boarded a small boat along with a few dozen other men headed towards Normandy Beach, knowing that three out of four of you in that craft would not make it out alive or at least without serious injury. In total, 4,414 men gave their life on that day and tens of thousands were injured. Well, in commemoration, sitting on the hill that day in 1984 with President Reagan was William Petty, a soldier on D-Day, he tried three times to reach the top of Point Duoc, but his teammates were shot, and he fought through 30 German soldiers during his climb. Leonard Lamel made it to the top of the cliff and destroyed two German guns with grenades. 
Frank South was a medic who treated numerous men on the beach. Tom Ruggiero was a professional tap dancer before the war, and despite a shell blowing up his transport boat, he survived a near drowning and made it up the cliff. The task of writing Reagan's address had been given to a 33-year-old speechwriter named Peggy Noonan from Brooklyn, New York. She had a degree in journalism, and what she composed for that event is considered by those who've analyzed her work as simply brilliant. For sheer oratorical elegance, historian Douglas Brinkley wrote, it would become one of the most inspirational presidential speeches ever delivered. Noonan had only been at the White House about three months, and she had never met the president, but she adored him and had a keen sense of the drama of the day and gave the president words with which to speak so that then and later people would listen. In preparing for the speech, she said she spent days pacing around the Washington Monument, read books about D-Day, and pondered. She read the book The Longest Day, and at one point during her pondering, she had a revelation. When she heard that 62 men would be seated in front of Reagan, she was inspired and changed everything about the speech. Her speech changed, and she wrote it so Reagan could speak directly to the men. At the bottom of page two of her type draft, the sentence... We have here today some of the survivors of the Battle of Point Duoc, some of the rangers who took these cliffs, is crossed out. And handwritten over it, in neat printed script, are the words, These are the boys of Point Duoc. And that line became famous. On the day of the speech, Reagan stood before a French-built stone monument constructed atop the old German bunker. The rangers in dark blazers and gray slacks and business suits stood and saluted when he stepped to the lectern. Then they sat down on wooden folding chairs. Reagan returned their salute. An inspiring moment. Noonan, the author, watched on TV in her office back in Washington. Reagan delivered the words perfectly. Forty years ago at this moment, the air was dense with smoke and the cries of men and was filled with the crack of rifle fire and the roar of cannon, Reagan said. Free nations had fallen. Jews cried out in the camps. Millions cried out for liberation. Europe was enslaved and the world prayed for its rescue. Here, the rescue began, Reagan continued. Behind me is a memorial that symbolizes the ranger daggers that were first thrust into the top of these cliffs, he said, glancing over his shoulder. And before me, he said with a pause, are the men who put them there. These are the boys of Point Duoc, he said, stopping as the applause rose from the crowd. These are the men who took the cliffs. These are the champions who helped free a continent. These are the heroes who helped end a war. At the end of his speech, Reagan used Noonan's closing inspired lines to pay tribute to the ranger dead. Strengthened by their courage, heartened by their valor, and borne by their memory, let us continue to stand for the honor and ideals for which they lived and died. Well, there were tears in the eyes of the old soldiers. The speech lasted about 14 minutes. The nation listened. And afterward, Reagan and the First Lady shook hands with the Rangers. And this speech would go on to be known as one of the most inspiring in modern-day presidential history. Now, I've walked from the water's edge on Normandy Beach to the cliffs of Point Duoc. When you're there... What strikes you is the huge distance these men had to cover, all the while being exposed to immense and intense enemy fire. 
The sheer bravery of these men stirs emotion within you. These men gave their lives for country on a foreign shore who more than self their country loved. It's inspiring to say the least. I walked among the grave markers in the cemetery atop the hill at Normandy and was awed by the experience. So, as we end today, perhaps you and I can do our part to lend our voice, give our vote, stand up for good, honor those who came before us, and work together to preserve our freedom. It may be a quilt, a visit, a thank you, a few minutes of gratitude on behalf of those who have given so much so that we can have so much. As the scripture says, when much is given, much is expected. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week as we seek to open our eyes to who and what we can become. Music